You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Libertarian Country is one of the fastest growing and most popular liberty-themed apparel companies in the world. This American-based company was founded by two brothers out of Baltimore who had a vision to create an online store that offers fun, unique, and controversial political clothing and accessories. This five-star company offers the hottest shirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So check them out today. This is an independently-owned, liberty-loving business that basically gives you the exact type of apparel and paraphernalia that you've wanted anyway. You just didn't know you wanted it now. Every purchase you make using the link in the show notes allows a small part of your purchase to come back and support the show. So go on, go grab some awesome libertarian country swag using that link in the show notes. You'll thank me later. Real fast, let me go ahead and tell you about Inbox Dollars. Are you looking for a side hustle so easy you could do it while sitting on the toilet or in between commercials watching your favorite show? Unless you're like on demand and commercials are like an ancient thing to you. Hear me out. Inbox Dollars has your back. For 20 years, Inbox Dollars has paid over $59 million in cash rewards to its members for doing everyday online activities such as reading emails, taking online surveys, playing games, and watching videos and TV. They also have ongoing promos and contests for members to win money online, and they share the top ways for people to get beauty samples, free printable coupons, and other free online stuff. With so many easy ways to earn extra cash online and having fun in the process, it's no wonder Forbes, Mashable, Bustle, and so many other trusted outlets name Inbox Dollars the easiest and fastest way to earn money online. If you're looking for a way to influence future products and services while getting paid at the same time, then Inbox Dollars is for you. Click the special link in the show notes of this episode today and get $5 just for signing up. Get this $5 signing bonus just for creating an account. That's Inbox Dollars. The link is in the show notes of today's episode. Get it, get your $5, and get started. yourself you're on the run with remzo w martinez ladies and gentlemen welcome back once again to your, your best part of the week i mean really you, you get to spend it with me you get to spend it with so many fantastic guests how can you not be excited for a brand new episode especially since we've been coming to you twice a week every every monday and thursday some i i, I guess i said last week monday and thursday and somebody was like you only come out tuesday and thursday why are you lying do you not know what you're doing unsubscribe block what the hell and uh you know i don't think that person was uh, in much of a chipper attitude, but I think, you know, despite everything going on in the world, what we're doing by ignoring what's going on in the headlines, by ignoring what's going on in Al Gore's amazing internet and focusing on the things that keep us going, the things that keep us motivated, the things that give us a purpose to keep trudging through the day. I think that's great. And what really has excited me are the number of creators, content creators, writers, innovators out there, whether you're big or small, whether you're just starting out or you're on the next project in your life. Um, you know, when you get to reach out to me about your suggestions for the show and everything else, it really does help me figure out what you want to talk more about. And today is one of those episodes. Um, 
as many of you know, I do author consulting and I get to talk with many people who are really first time authors most of the time. And the, the great thing is when they come up with something that they truly fall in love with, a topic that they really want to go ahead and share with the world. But what has always been a struggle for me and a struggle for many of them is fiction, especially when you want to go ahead and have fiction with a message. I'm talking things like A Brave New World in 1984 and Agenda 21. Any good story always echoes some parts of the world around us. And as somebody that has written a historical fiction novel, uh, has succeeded in politics and other forms of devil worship, you understand half the book was almost entirely fake. The other half was really the the real life goings of somebody who once lived. So I was able to lean on that a little bit more. But what was always a challenge for me is thinking, how the, how the heck did George Lucas think of Star Wars? How do people think of these amazing worlds, of these fantastic ideas, of these, you know, really captivating stories that make the reader want to just keep turning pages one after another. Well, today I have an author who's been able to accomplish that herself, and I'm really excited to go ahead and not just talk about her book, but really understand the process of how to get this done. Because if we all need help with one thing, it's that follow-through momentum to actually get this idea on the paper and get it in front of readers eventually. Today, our guest is Kimberly Humphreys. She's written a book, um, it's called The Huntress. It's the first of the war-torn trilogy. And essentially, it's a modern Orwellian tale highlighting the travesties of socialism and religious oppression in a collapsing society turned godless. Former socialite and reprobate Kiera Weston is forced to raise her child in a community where motherhood and religion are illegal. Kind of Kind of looks like what's going on in some parts of the world, am I right? Well, while being forced to hunt and endure the oppression of a dystopian social, socialist society, um, all that is coming down to show that when presented with an opportunity to help an injured pilot from the opposition, Kira follows her Christian values and makes the life-changing decision affecting the freedom of future generations. Kim, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Not a problem. So I've got to ask, when you were thinking of what you wanted to do for this book, which is the first part of your series, what was really the first thing that came into your mind? I want to write a, just a captivating fictional story to entertain people, or I have this real-life message of the things that I'm passionate about and I want other people to focus on, and I think the best way to do that is through fiction. So what, what kind of came first, chicken or the egg on that? Well, I, I actually was going through um, quite a bit of um, scary times for myself. I, I, I'm a military spouse, and we had just moved a thousand miles away from family. And I, my husband was gone a lot. And our neighborhood was really, really wild. We had people that were fighting each other all the time in our yard, damaging property. The law enforcement wasn't that good. And it just came to me. I was like, oh my gosh, what if? What if I was all alone for good? My husband wasn't coming back. And what if instead of fighting each other and damaging my things by fighting each other, they were constantly trying to hurt me and my children and what, how horrible that would be. And at the same time, this was when Obama was president and I was constantly seeing horrible, horrible stories on the news. Um, chaplains in the army getting fired just for having a Bible open on their desk. And, um, you know, Sergeants losing, you know, their pension and everything for having Chick-fil-A at a promotion party and all of this discrimination against Christians 
while at the same time, even as a mom, especially these kids, I was receiving so much discrimination for being a mother. And that's basically how Kira, the main character in the story, was born. So wh- why didn't you, because I mean, just right there, that, that sounds like a, 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 an insane story that, I mean, it, it does, does seem like it has a catch to it. Wh- why did you go fiction and not nonfiction? Because it sounds like you could have had a bit of a memoir with that. Well, I went fiction because I think that um, it's easier for people to relate to things that are real enough, but not somebody else, you know, not an actual person. I think that what I wanted to do with the story, why I said it so far in the future, is I wanted to take the identity of our nation and the name of our nation and other countries in the world and political parties off of it mm-hmm. and just have it be the idealism. Like I wanted to show how bad socialism can get. And at the time, it was, when I first started writing this, it was 2017. And I just envisioned this country where it was dark. They had everything. They were prosperous before. It was dark and, and they had no electricity, no cars, no airplanes. They gave it all up. And <laughs> when my husband first read it, he was like, nobody would do that. He's like, not even the, the craziest, you know, eco-Nazi would ever do that. They would never, you know, oppress themselves like that. Well, the Green New Deal, basically, I don't know if you've seen the, the cartoon thing that AOC came out with. It's pretty much like, yeah, we got to get rid of cars and airplanes. And it's like, oh, my gosh. So this has to get out because we should be, instead of um, oppressing ourselves to care for the environment, we should be looking at better ways to, to make our lives better while protecting the environment at the same time instead of just saying, you know what, no, you get to go back to the Stone Age. And these things, I think, are, are really important for innovation. And I, I'm hoping that with this story, that it can kind of touch people who are, you know, maybe like, oh, socialism's great because it takes care of everybody. And to help them see that, no, the government ends up owning everybody and owning everything. And all it does is bring torment and pain. So that's that's basically the main message of the whole story. I, I totally get where you're coming from with that. And I think a lot of up-and-coming authors encounter this issue because what, what I tell everybody is that there is already a market for your book. You have to find them. But with that said, depending on how you market your book, you can also push away people who would have otherwise been interested in it. And whether it's you know Christian fiction or whether it's a political commentary book, that that already tells people a little bit of what they don't want in some things. And I think by going the route of fiction and having it be more of an adventure story with all those elements that you discussed going into it, you're definitely widening your audience of that. Um, because I mean, ultimately people, people do judge a book by their cover. Obviously somebody who's a secular atheist or Muslim or whatever, they're not going to go to the Christian fiction section. And then when it comes to our current events section, most bookstores, I mean, they usually resonate with what the opposite party is doing. So obviously during the age of Obama, every Republican and their grandmother was writing a book about that. Whereas if you go ahead and go with this, I mean, you're really touching that, that 1984 type of niche area because these ideas are universal and they're timeless. And ultimately, um, you know, somebody can write a book about the Trump administration during the first term, but that book will be totally outdated by the second term. Whereas things like this, this constant struggle between socialism and capitalism, liberty and tyranny, I mean, that stuff is probably, you know, while it might sound like a, a negative thing for me to say it, that stuff is going to be talked about for generations to come. I, I don't think these ideas will, die. So as you were crafting the story, um, you, you already had this, this mindset of the messages you wanted in there. 
Um, what, what was it like actually crafting the world for your protagonist? Um, did, did you have an idea of the setting? Did you, you know, take inspiration from other novels? What was that process like? Because the problem with me and fiction has always been the world building aspect of it. I love the Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm a big comic nerd, but each time I've ever tried to, you know, open up my computer and start drafting the outline for a fictional story, it's that creative side of me. That's just not really there. That's my limit. So what, what was it like actually getting to create the world that your characters have to live in? And what were the challenges of that? Well, I wanted to show uh, Octaria. That's the socialist country in, in my story I wanted to show it is very dark so I made it up like more like in what Canada would be where there's not as much sunshine and a lot of pine trees and fog and and just kind of set that scene that it's it's ugly and it's dark and really my inspiration for that was when we lived in in Maryland for a while I'm from Southern California so I'm used to sunshine and, and um, going there was was hard for me because um, it was it was very dark and gloomy cold winters. So I took that and I, I just kind of expanded on that and made it worse. And that was um, basically Octaria. And um, for world building, growing up, I just love Gene Roddenberry. I, I love Star Trek, especially The Next Generation. I, I just oh, love absolutely. Yeah, like so many different races and, and so many different talents could just come together and work together. I just love that idea. And I, I just love the creativity of it. So that was my main influence as a child. Um, just every night I had to watch that. When it was on at 7, I was like, oh, I can watch that. Star Trek Next Generation because it just fascinated me. And so if I can, if I can expand and build a world that is, is relatable but completely different, um, that, that to me is exciting. And I actually really enjoy that. Um. That, that definitely is something that a lot of people really look into when they're trying to create this world. Because, um, like, for me, I, my, my biggest challenge, and I, I was speaking of somebody who actually wanted to write a space opera recently. And it, it was like Guardians of the Galaxy meets Flash Gordon and all this other stuff. Um, his big challenge was, how do I make it unique? How do I make it so that when people are reading this, they're not like, oh this is something I've seen before. Oh, this reminds me of this. Um, I, I don't actually have much of a problem with it because I genuinely believe that all good fiction is an homage or inspired by something else. My my favorite director of all time is Quentin Tarantino. I, I love Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my absolutely favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. And he blatantly says, if it's good, take it. Don't, don't be ashamed to take other people's good ideas as long as you do it well. If you take it and it's bad, people will see that. But if you do it and it's good, people will enjoy it. Um, what, what do you think about that? Because I genuinely think that as long as the characters are carrying the story and you're not picking too much of the important details in terms of character progression from other stories and stuff, ultimately your, your story will do well. I think that barrier of, Oh, I have to go ahead and create something just from scratch is what intimidates most people because they think that they have to come up with something entirely new. Well, I can tell you that the main character in the story is actually based on the biblical character of Abigail. Um, the reason why is because I, I am so impressed by that story about how she, she had a, a horrible husband 
and she she knew that she was going to have death brought on her, her entire household and she risked her life to go confront king david and her husband ended up dying and he and she ended up becoming um, king david's wife and i think that that has um it's inspired a lot of women in the church uh, who have had um difficult relationships and i kind of wanted to show that with with kira she's not a cinderella she's not um it, things don't just happen for her just because she's pretty or whatever she she works she she puts her life on the line she she does you know impossible things and, and to um really impress the love interest in the story and i think that that is that is important to show but that was that was my inspiration I and mean, it's completely different i i i don't think that it's it's necessarily good to copy things and i know that a lot of people complain about how you know there's so many reboots and there's so many remakes and everything is you know there's nothing really original out and i think that um it's really hard to get original things out especially if they're very different people don't want to touch it and that's that's unfortunate yeah i, I think the biggest thing that i've figured out for myself at least is that you're going regardless of what you do when you're writing a fictional story you're ultimately borrowing the world of somebody else to a degree but i think where a lot of people succeed and where a lot of people is where a lot of people fail is this very important thing and i think that this is the the crux of all good fiction is it character driven because if the characters are flat if the characters don't seem like real people if you're not following the the natural arc that this character should be going through that's when people start making the comparisons that's when people stop connecting with it and that's ultimately when they stop reading because some of the best stories out there have taken inspiration from other tropes and other outlines but what makes them different is how the characters are and i mean one of the biggest examples that i could think of and i'm, I'm probably getting this long is the race between um Hercules and the the dude that runs fast Mercury I think that's it yeah the the tail the, the race between um, Titans Hercules and Mercury and one of the best retellings of that story came through DC Comics where the Flash and Superman have to race each other see who the fastest person in the world is and while you know the outline is there the world is there the situation is there you have these two godlike beings who have this strange power and they're going to basically duel it out by racing around the world to see who's as fast as possible. That is where the similarity basically ends because then what happens with the story is you get to see how these two very fleshed out characters interact with the challenges, interact with each other. And then the, the biggest difference is at the end. And this is like a 60 year old story folks. If I'm spoiling it for you, I, you know, I apologize, but basically Superman lets the flash win. He purposely throws the race for flash because he knows that if he loses, he's, I mean, one, he can no longer call himself the fastest man alive, but two, it will just completely crush him. And there are reasons why he did it, but that's something that readers were not expecting because who wins? Well, it, it wasn't Hercules in that situation, but they they do that because ultimately the writers understand the characters, they understand the immediate challenges, and they know how to get people just comfortable enough so that when they make small changes like that, the story is more impactful. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, there have been a few remakes that were like, whoa, it's completely surprising. They do have that twist at the end, and it's exciting. Um, 
I think that for me, what I like with, with my characters is, is having them go through so much hardship and then rise up and, and rise up in, in victory. That's, that's what I enjoy seeing. I enjoy seeing that transformation of somebody who, who goes through something so terrible and doesn't give up. And um, that's something that I, I hope to um, show the reader and the, the resiliency. So, yeah, absolutely. And folks, I just want to remind you real fast. I mean, her book is out today. You can go ahead and pick out The Huntress, part one of the War-Torn Trilogy out wherever books are, um, Amazon. You know how the internet works. But, um, you know, getting back to the topic, um, the, the one thing that really impresses me is when somebody is able to take basically the topics that we're talking about now and put it in a story like this. Um, obviously, I mean, the last couple of years, we've had socialism really become a household term. People would throw it around during the Obama years, but, you know, they, the left, so they're, you know, to, to kind of give them a compliment on this, they're really good at just, sw- you know, swiping it down. Oh, we don't, we don't want socialized medicine. We just want everyone to have health care. Oh, we don't want to go ahead and put light bulb manufacturers out of business. We just want fish and energy. Oh, we don't want to, you know, nationalize the banks. We just don't want people to go broke. And now it's like not even within a, a full decade, just a, like a full four or five years later. Now it's well, capitalism has failed. We need full-on socialism. Um, what was it like trying to take these topics that are really the the same conversations and the same challenges you're seeing when you turn on the news or go online, and not get swayed by? wanting to really pitch in with what's going on right now, according to what's breaking news, because that that's something that an author I spoke about recently had a problem with. He was trying to write a book about uh, an election where basically a full on socialist uh, won the presidency and what happens after that. And his biggest problem was he almost felt too tied to the moment. So that way when Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race he lost a lot of his motivation to keep going with the book. And what I tried to tell him was, dude, you've got a good premise. Just be creative and make the story what you think it would be, less, less in terms of making it what you see and spinning it. Um, what, what was that like? Because, I mean, we, we could talk about a lot of the, the big tropes that your book talks about, and we could pull it with a lot of other books, films, comics, what have you. But ultimately, when you're talking about something that is so present, that, that must be, one, really encouraging because you're getting new source material all the time. You're, you're constantly getting <laughs> new ideas. But then it's like, oh, what, what if I'm too tied to the moment? Well, um, that, was, that was an interesting experience. And I, I actually enjoyed that because what I did was I made um, the main character, Kira, um, her past is she was a, a reporter. She was known as um, the modest beauty because in her country, it was extremely inclusive, um, very indecent. Like there's no FCC laws. Okay. And she came out and she kept to a standard that made it to where the silent majority um, kind of really just loved her and her ratings went up and it surprised everybody. And she had an amazing background and wealth and she, she genuinely um, cared about what she did. So I thought that that, w- that was kind of interesting because with um, today, we're not there yet, but it seems to me that things are getting more and more indecent. And it seems like if we keep on this path, 
it, it could very well happen like that in the future where everything is just grotesque. And she, um, she, like I said, was the most inclusive nation on the earth. And then all of a sudden, the new prime minister just wiped out. Christianity didn't want anything that could threaten um, the worship government. And that is a very real fear for me and for my children um, with what's going on right now. There's, there's so much discrimination against Christianity. And I, I just saw it and, and put myself basically in this fictional you know, nation, what it would look like and just expanded on that. And while at the same time, expanding on other places that weren't like that and, and trying to build that contrast of which way we could go. And that just to me is something that, um, like I said, it's very scary because we're not there yet. We're closer than we've ever been in my lifetime, but we're not there yet as far as how bad it can get. And I, I think a lot of Christians that I know that they're so big hearted that they want, they want, they like the idea of uh, taking care of everybody. But I, I guess I'm a more libertarian in that way because I don't, I don't think that's the government's job. And I think that the more power that we give to the government to take care of people, the more power we give to the government to hurt people. And I think that charity should belong to the church and, and not, not to the government. And that's what I would like to see more of instead of it being more welfare and more government programs. We need to kind of cut back on that. Yeah. My, my biggest criticism of, and like, I, I'm going to juxtapose myself when I say this, but like, I love dystopian fiction. I don't like many dystopian fiction stories because what they're really good at showing you is the world around you. What they're not good at showing you is what life was like beforehand. And, you know, with, with your book, you explicitly talk about, you know, there's this war on religion, specifically Christianity. There's this war on what we would see as moral truth. I think a lot of dystopian fiction is not willing to touch on that because they want this vague paradise of before. But what they always forget is that, you know, just because the world is basically gone to crap now doesn't mean it was absolutely perfect before that happened. And like, I, I'm a fan of the Hunger Games films, but I'm not a big fan of the stories. One, I'm not a big fan of how they're written because I don't feel that the characters ever go through a lot of change. A lot of thing, ha- a lot of stuff happens to them, obviously. A lot of things happen, so they have to react to them. But there's not a lot of seeing them change as people. It's like they're really just devices for the plot to keep it going. There's a lot of un- unnecessary exposition. And, you know, my, my thing with the Hunger Games was, yeah, they, they show that people are somewhat segregated into these different working factions and things like that. The, the different territories, the ca- what you know, what people live like in the capital, and what they live like in a uh, District Twelve or wherever where they're having to mine. It's like, yeah, obviously, you see, there's no free will. There's no ability to basically choose what you want to do with your life. But at the same time, it's like that can't just be it. Being told what to do and being told what not to do are not always the same things. And it's also somewhat my criticism of 1984. I mean, you're reading the book from the perspective of the main character, and he's talking about the things that make up the world, but we don't ultimately know what he wanted. Obviously, what he wanted was he wanted to be able to have a, 
you know, a, an illicit relationship with a younger woman. That's really it. But like, what about free speech? Yeah, they've got new speak, but what, what would they want to talk about if they could say anything else? What would they believe if they could believe anything else? Mm-hmm. This is why, you know, with a lot of dysp- dystopian fiction, I feel they're really good at showing you the world after everything has gone to crap, but they don't tell you what makes it worse. And it's not not being able to, you know, live a normal life in the suburbs and go to the grocery store for your food, not worry about people breaking down your door and killing your family. It's about those loss of things that are important to you. It's about being disconnected from community. It's about being disconnected from your beliefs. It's about being disconnected from your ability to be who you are. So I think with you coming outright with what are the things being threatened, this definitely takes it in a way that a lot of books either don't want to be or don't want to talk about. Yes, um, it doesn't really show the backstory of how Octaria fell until the second book. It just touches Mm -hmm. on it a little bit in this one, but it shows a lot of the societal downfall. And what concerns me right now with where we're at today is the um, the hatred, the absolute hatred for people just because they think differently. I don't think that that is productive and it, it really, um, putting us in these tribes and they're all supposed to be enemies of each other, it, I think is really destructive. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I grew up in Southern California. I don't, I don't have any problems with people thinking differently than me or living their, their lives differently than me. I was exposed to a lot of different things and it didn't threaten me. It didn't threaten my freedom. But now we're being told that, oh, yes, them thinking different than you threatens you. And it's the, actually the opposite. And that's kind of what ends up happening in Octaria. And it, it, it really comes down full throttle really fast once it, it hits that point. And that's whenever it's, it's, it's death. It leads to death. And I, I believe that that's where socialism always leads, for one group at least. It's always some... Um, group ends up having to die and that's that's just evil what, what what's it like for you having already written this book and then you look around and you see everything going on in the news with the pandemic with the riots with the political unrest it, in, in a way it must be like wow i'm actually getting to see some of the world that i talk about but at the same time it's probably kind of horrifying because it's like well <laughs> shit this is kind of the world that i talk about yeah, I- not mean for it to be a prophetic story (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it's very scary um especially with the mob i mean there is a a bit of mob rule um in octaria with the criminals because they're under horrible surveillance with the drones and that freaked me out so bad i have to tell you because i wrote this in 2017 whenever the drone wow (laughs) (laughs) social distancing social distancing practice social distancing i was like oh my god it's happening in real life because in Ontario, the government patrols with drones every day. Everybody has to open all their windows and let the drone go around and see what they're up to, make sure that they don't have children, make sure that they don't have anything they're not supposed to. And it's just intrusive surveillance. But at the same time, that's the only law and order. And if that goes, the mob absolutely rules. All these crazy drug addicts just that don't have any hope for themselves. They don't have any individualism because they don't, they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to think for themselves. 
this is uh this is crazy that you bring up the drones because uh, we're folks we're we're recording this on July twentieth. Just yesterday, I think it was Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the British government put out this mandate saying that you have to go ahead and wear a mask within your own home. Oh my gosh, it's so impressive. I know it's like who's going to enforce that? And they're like, well, we have methods. It's like, well, I, I can only imagine what the methods are because when you look at you know, London itself, it's the most surveilled city in, in the so-called free world. I mean, they, they, they have as almost as much surveillance of their own citizenry as like what they have in China, for example. They're just missing the social credit score. It, we it's, can't have that. We can't let, let it get to that. Yeah. That scares me so bad. Especially what, how, much, it, how fast everything's happening now for us. How much worse is it going to be for future generations if it doesn't you know, stop? So that's that's something very alarming, especially with the technology. I mean, it's like what Ron Paul talked about when he was running for president. Uh, cameras in the home, yeah, cameras in the home would stop a lot of crime, but would it, you know, is it worth it? No, it's not. It's not worth that intrusion. So it's yeah. very scary. My uh, my my favorite dystopian alt future story of all time is probably Brave New World, because I I think right now, especially in American culture we've chosen the brave new world versus 1984. We didn't want to be told that we're losing something. We wanted to basically give up certain things freely. And in 1984, the biggest contrast, I'm sorry, the biggest contrast between a brave new world and 1984 is that in the world that, um, brave new world is in the citizenry just gave up all their freedoms the citizenry they've chosen to basically live these super convenient super you know completely degenerate lives at the cost of everything that would give them purpose whereas in 1984 they never had the choice they've just been put into these lives they're they're in the surveillance state and that that's where i you know i I fear things because you know we look at post 9-11 america I mean, the the government didn't take away any freedoms that we didn't want them to take away. And situations like this, I mean, I, I find it funny when I see leftists online who are calling Trump a fascist and all this other stuff, but they're mad when he doesn't do completely dictatorial actions. It's it's like this crazy, like, halfway thinking. It's like they're going to jump the the results because they want to, because they want to see the action regardless, because they can't differentiate between anything else. It's, it's so crazy. And I I think that's, I I think that it's really sad that, you know, in the last decade, decade and a half, we've had probably more dystopian fiction than ever. I really think after 2008, it took off, but you would think that with all that, with books like the giver with, I mean, hell like freaking walking dead, you would think that we ha- we've had enough of these ethical and philosophical conversations to be able to apply these situations to our own lives. But I'm seeing people that, you know, watched the Hunger Games and watched all this other stuff who know the signs of what tyranny looks like, either completely ignoring it or they're advocating for it. I mean, I, I, I spoke with somebody about the, the persecution of the Uyghurs in China. And it's like, well, no one's going to talk about the literal slave camps where they're making iPhones because what Apple did was they made their their logo, the little pride flag emoji for the month of June. So because they did that, we can ignore everything else they do that's terrible. 
I, I feel like, you know, there's a the dystopian fiction really talks about the things that we fear, but at the same time, I think either it's failed or we've failed to, to really try and take the construct in our own lives. Yeah, I can definitely see that. What's really frightening is these same people that are calling um, Trump and his supporters fascist are saying different words, but the same type of um, phrases and meanings is just spoken differently as the actual Nazis did in Germany. They're, they're being fascist themselves. And it's, it's very, very frightening, especially now it seems like every single day it's just escalating and escalating. And I feel like a lot of them are out for blood. I don't feel that it, it's um, just wanting to vote anymore. And, and that's extremely alarming for our country as a whole. And you would think that we would learn off history enough and, and, and that fiction, like you said, it would expand people's minds to be like, mm, wait a minute, you know, what, this needs to stop. It, it doesn't seem to be working. So it's, it's very frightening. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at, I, I call it the Scantron mentality. I think we've completely killed critical thinking from public education, which I have a giant problem with uh, on itself. But like, you know, I, I thought it was so funny when you would see people go on CNN talking about the Antifa riots and they're like, well, they're anti-fascist. So <laughs> if you're against these people burning down schools and destroying Starbucks and attacking innocent people with bike locks, you're for fascism. And it's almost turned into the, the the Black Lives Matter situation. You know, very early on, like in 2015, 2014, I was very, you know, I, if someone asked, do all lives matter, or do Black Lives Matter? I would say, well, I'm going to say Black Lives Matter because let's actually talk about it. It's not saying that others don't or that they mean more. It's that there are big inequalities in terms of how justice is distributed in the United States. I still very much believe that, but at the same time, it scares me when people on camera are videotaping people just trying to go about their lives, and they're being told, we're not going to let you go unless you say Black Lives Matter. And if you say all lives matter, it's going to kill you. It's almost like I, you know, the, the weaponization of identity politics that you've seen throughout history and throughout the world. I mean, we don't need to go all the way back to the Holocaust. I like to talk about the Rwandan genocide a lot because that happened the year I was born. Uh, 1993, 1994 is when that was going on. And you had to go ahead and tell people whether you were a Hutu or a Tutsi. And unless you gave an answer, they were probably going to kill you on the spot. It's one of those things where it's, you know, we're, we're able to twist words. It's like democratic socialism. Well, it's communism with a nice bow on top of it. Well, oh, it's free, it's free healthcare. And it's like, oh, well, if you think healthcare is expensive now, wait until it's free. We, we've really devolved from a society that had everything to help us prevent tyranny and fascism and all this other stuff from happening. But it's almost like we just didn't care. Do, do you think that dystopian fiction has now been seen more as just an entertainment tool, as more of a plot device? Or do you think it was always supposed to be something that warned people? Because it seems like that alone, that, that argument, it, it's almost like we, we've, lost, we've lost the purpose of it. Story is good for story's sake, but story also has to teach people something if it's, so, if it's going to be good. I think it was meant for warning. I really do. I think a lot of it, though, isn't relatable compared to what's going on exactly today. I mean, other than, you know, of course, 1984 and things like that, but there's um, people separate themselves with it instead of, you know, thinking, well, that could actually happen in real life. I think some of it is so far fetched. I, I really enjoyed the Hunger Games, you know, um, but I think a lot of it was was 
pretty far-fetched in a lot of ways um, to be, you know, thought of as fake. But it's hard. It's hard because they're not just what's happening in our own country right now. They're not just after us for um, our political beliefs. I, I mean, I don't want any anybody oppressed. And I think that what's, what's happened with Black people has been horrible. But at the same time, I don't understand why they're tearing down um, statues of Abraham Lincoln, who is one of the main reasons why I'm proud to be a Republican. I mean, he he freed them. He he he's the grandfather of the Republican Party. And I, I don't understand why they're attacking him now. They're attacking him now. I mean, where does it stop? And on top of that, wanting us to bow. I I don't think that's okay. That entrenches on my religious liberty. I, I don't bow to anybody. And it doesn't mean that I don't care about them, that I don't I don't want them to, you know, be oppressed or anything. I don't. I don't want them to be oppressed. I don't see them as less than me, but I will not bow to them. You know, I, I don't think that that is an acceptable um, law that you have to bow or else you're you're racist or else you're this man. It's like, this is too far. This is getting to where we're going to be seen as the Jews were and as some of the other, you know, races were before, you know, horrible, horrible atrocities happen. And it really does frighten me. Did, uh, have you ever seen that movie, Idiocracy? Yes. Oh, my goodness. we are there (laughs) oh my gosh we just missing Mountain Dew Camacho (laughs) why are all the crops dead it's we don't know we thought that plants craved electrolytes it's what Brondo says plants crave it's like I I I don't believe a lot of conspiracies. And one reason is because you would have to have people who are so trusting of each other that they're capable of keeping giant secrets. So I don't don't often believe that there's this whole idea for a one world government, because even when you listen to the leftists, like they, 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 they segregate themselves, the socialists, the, the transnationalists, the communists, the fascists, the, the technocrats. It's like they even they can't handle it. They fight each other. But what does bother me is that I, 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 see, I see idiocracy less as a comedy and more as a documentary because it always comes down to we're just – I don't think we're going towards this giant super police state. I see us entering more of a situation where it's like we're just so stupid that we just let things crumble for the sake of it. And with this whole, you know, Corona situation with the riots and everything else, it bothers me the number of people who I considered sane, logical, normal people who have just lost basic comprehension. Yeah, it's very frightening, especially with our leadership. It's like, why are they making these decisions? It's not helpful in a lot of places. I mean, not, I mean, defend the police. It's crazy, and this idea. I want. I want to see them do that. I want to see what happens the one day cops don't show up to anything. I want to see them suffer in a way, because it's like I don't. I don't see any other way they'll learn other than when their houses are being broke broken into, when when their when their cars are stolen, when their child is shot. It's almost like, do you need to have things go to that extreme in order to figure out what you're saying is stupid? What scares me, though, is what do they want to replace it? I mean, what because there's going to be somebody more powerful, whether it's a gang or a mafia or something else, that's going to be like, okay, we're the new law in town. And that's really frightening. And this idea that I'm hearing um, city leaders say that it's an entitlement to um, be able to call the police. 
my property taxes pay for that. Everybody, renters, almost every property tax pays for that. It's a paid for service. So it's just unbelievably stupid that it's being even presented as that because it's a lie. It's a total lie. I think I, and this is my opinion. I think Trump is going to win by a landslide because of all of this. This is very much turned into a culture war. We're not talking about trade. We're not talking about really any of the important issues that political nerds like I want to talk about. We're talking about really, it's going back to like 2016. Can a man go into a woman's bathroom? It's really come down to that. But now it's like they've jumped the shark and we're talking about all these things. I think the biggest thing that harmed Joe Biden, and I'm almost sad that it ended so early, it's uh, it's Chaz or Chop or whatever. I was hoping that that would stay as, as long as like Occupy Wall Street did. Uh, that lasted for over six months. Chaz ended after a week. And I was hoping it could be used as a tool against the Democrats until Election Day. I'm afraid that by next month we'll have forgotten it happened. But what really reminded me of idiocracy was when they started that. And then what you see is what they actually did when they tried to plant a garden. And they're trying to base, they're throwing like, you know, leaves of lettuce onto mounds of dirt on top of cardboard. But what really got me was when you saw the warlord that took over, Raz Simone, who's a rapper and Airbnb super host, and he's going around with guns saying, I'm in charge now. Yeah. That is the funniest freaking thing that's happened all year. It's terrifying, <laughs> but it's funny as hell. They needed electrolytes for their garden. <laughs> they needed Gatorade. They they actually said that there was a, a at the at the border of Chaz. They had this like a homeless person sign of things that they wanted people from outside of Chaz to bring in. So Chaz is understanding that when you're a closed police state, you still need to have some degree of trade. And they literally <laughs> just put electrolytes. They're like men's clothing. <laughs> Uh, cereal, breakfast bars, electrolytes. And it's like, wow, this is, they've become idiocracy. This is literally it. These are the people who vote. I I don't think most of them vote, but these are the people who vote. These people live. That's what scares me. These people are functioning adults who are, well, at least semi-functioning. And it's like, they actually think that this is smart. They actually think that this is something they want to do. It's crazy. How many of them, if if you went down to Chaz, how many of them do you think would say they like the Hunger Games? Um, If they, they probably would. They probably would say they like They probably would. Yeah, the movie. They probably took nothing from it, but they probably like Jennifer Lawrence. Yes, exactly. They saw the movies, they liked it. That was, you know, yeah. I doubt many of them read the book. I don't think reading's a big thing in Chaz. No. Emojis, maybe. <laughs> Probably. It, uh, it, I, I think dystopian fiction will be around forever because I think regardless as to how we take the things that have existed prior to when we're talking about this, I, I think ultimately dystopian f- fiction is a reflection of our biggest fears. W- would, would you say that's accurate? Yes. My, my only thing is I think we're going to see it and correct me if I'm wrong. I think the next, I think dystopian fiction is going to be phases. I think it's going to go from the big super police state to the big super um, culture theocracy to now it's going to be a story where someone wakes up and they're horrified because people are freely associating and they're freely going to church. Oh my God. They, they see a homeschool family and they think that that homeschool family is a direct threat to their life i i, I think that's gonna be the next part of it and that yeah, that's no, what I scares me. 
No, I homeschool. So yes, I, I, the criticism on that is like, I, I know my kids are getting a fantastic education. I mean, the curriculum that they, the things that they know and they're learning, it's like, it's ignorant to put that on all homeschoolers. And I think that that I'm hoping that'll change since a COVID hit. I know that with the um, online Academy that they're in, they, they were telling us that they were just getting a whole bunch of new students enrolled because parents are seeing the Zoom classrooms and they're seeing that, whoa. It was just daycare. They, they, they weren't learning. It was just daycare. Exactly. So uh, hopefully that will change and hopefully that will fix things. It's going to be the homeschool kids that save, save our country <laughs> at this rate with the way things are going. Yeah. Because I'm sorry, seeing, seeing people, full-grown adults that needed therapy dogs and coloring books because Trump won in 2016 just showed that most, not all, but most of the higher education has failed. And I'm going to go a little conspiracy here. I believe that we have common communism infiltrating from China. I don't have anything to back oh, that, that up. Oh, that's proven. Did, did you hear about that professor and the one student who was actually like a 40-year-old man who looked like a teenager who they were selling trade secrets back to the Chinese government from like Harvard? Oh, no, I didn't hear about that. I'll send you the story. It is insane. This this professor has basically been on the payroll of the Chinese government for like two decades. And see, it's already here. <laughs> why why isn't he being punished for treason on that? I mean, that is that is unacceptable. This is this is dangerous grounds. You know, it's it's really really bad. I think that that's where a lot of stuff we're seeing is coming from. I think um, it's it's like a cold war that we're in. Myself personally. Yeah. I mean, this is why, like, I, 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 I don't, me personally, I don't see the political process as something that can drastically change a person's life positively. I think more so it will negatively impact someone's life more so than positively change someone's life. But really, I think it all really comes down to what Andrew Breitbart used to say, which is all politics is downstream of culture. And I think in a large part, conservatives, Christians, Republicans, anyone basically right of Mao has really failed to capture culture. And I think with books like yours, you're speaking the language of people that wouldn't otherwise want to talk about these ideas. I see books like yours as a greater net positive when you're getting in actual readers' hands versus people that are campaigning who mo- half the population won't listen to because of the letter that's next to their name. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. But one, one thing that I do show in, in the whole trilogy, but in the first book as well, is um, how, how important masculinity is. And then going back to why I feel that so much of this is an attack from China is because there's such an attack on masculinity. And that is what protects um, a, a good society. We need, we need um, the military and the police, fathers. We need that in order to have well-rounded, competent, smart children to rise up and to be able to live free. And that is so important. And that has been under so much attack. I mean, it has been disgusting how much masculinity has been under attack, especially in the past few years. So I I, I did show that in the novel too, because that is, I don't think people understand without that, we lose. We, you know, we can still be invaded. We can still be destroyed. We are not too big to fill. No country is. And we have to have that. It's so important. Absolutely. This actually segues perfectly into, into my last question. What do you think about Kanye West running for president? Well, I'm going to be honest. Whenever, um, 
whenever he was in rehab, I prayed for him. I prayed that he would come to God. It is, I, I thought that the treatment of him, the way that the, the left treated him, the way that you know he was basically seen as crazy was horrible, absolutely horrible. But <laughs> bless his heart, I like a lot of the things that he's saying. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not gonna vote for him. I'm gonna vote for Trump. Um, I hope that he he can bring really um, different ideas and in, in, into the black community. I would love to see um, all Planned Parenthood offices closed in their neighborhoods. I would love to see that done. I'm really I'm impressed with how brave he is talking about um, you know the pro life issue. But I I I just don't think that it's. Um, going to happen. I don't even think he could get on all the ballots. I, I don't, I don't think so. I know that, uh, my, let me see my brother Ryan's here. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Hey, look at me. I'm going to throw something at him. He knows. Take, take off your headset. I got a question. Hey, what, what state did Kanye get on the ballot on Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Okay. So he could run for president of Oklahoma if he wanted to, but okay, like, here's, uh, <laughs> here's the thing though, him saying the birthday party, because when he wins, everybody's going to have their birthday and his kids. That's a good plan. <laughs> well, I think it's a little kindergarten myself personally. I don't, I, oh. I had, I had to make fun of that a little bit. Cause it's yeah. Like, oh, come on. I, I, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I'm not going to say anything negative about Kanye, but what I will say is that I, I think Kanye being really a pure creation of popular culture by standing on these issues that have tried that have almost gotten him canceled by popular media and Hollywood and everything else. I think he's an example of somebody who's doing something so extreme that he's going to get a lot of people who wouldn't listen to less necessarily Republicans, at least consider common sense. I won't even call them conservative. I'll just call them common sense ideas because when you listen to them, it's basic stuff. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think, I think Trump's going to win, but at the same time, it's like, I think Kanye will have made more people leave the Democratic Party than any Republican will have ever been able to. I hope that he can bring a revival and also um, the respect for fatherhood and the importance of fatherhood um, to that community, because I think that that will lift the Black community up from poverty and from the oppression that they're in more than anything else. Because if you look at the statistics of how many of them grow up in fatherless homes, and how important that is. And I think that what he's doing is going to be fantastic for that community as a whole. And I hope that, you know, at least that comes out of it. But it's definitely a shakeup. It definitely looks so unexpected. Weird. <laughs> this is the most 2020 thing to happen thus far. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So, uh, Kim, it's been an absolute blast. I loved picking your brain about all these ideas. Um, if people want to connect with you, see all your projects, buy a copy of your book, how could they do so? Um, it's on Amazon. It's on Amazon Kindle. Um, it's on paperback on Amazon. It's also on Apple Store and uh, Smashwords and Barnes and Noble and all those places. I'm only on Parlor. I'm not on any other social media platform. So if they're on Parlor, they can follow me at Kimberly Humphreys. Awesome. Well, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the program. I've had an absolute blast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. And folks, you can find me anywhere at Hey Remso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. But if you really want to engage with me, I am on Parlor, just at Remso, R-E-M-S-O. If you ever see Remso 2 pop up, 
uh, message them and call them a loser. As always, you're listening to On The Run. I'm Remsen W. Martinez. I will talk to you later. Have a great night, everyone. Bye. Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.